As I mentioned, today's uh, theme is Creation Undone, which focuses on Genesis chapters 6 to 9. Our reading this morning, which Marion will be focusing on a bit later, is Genesis chapter 6 and verses 5 through to verse 20, which reads, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race that I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, and this is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide and 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it, leaving below the roof an opening of one cubit high all around. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I am going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. This might just be me, but have you ever driven somewhere and come to a point in your journey where you've thought, I know where I am, but I don't actually remember getting here? There's a chunk that you just don't remember. It's amazing what you can do automatically. Maybe a a skill like cycling or or swimming when you've not been on a bike or been in a pool for years. Or what about those times when you get lost in thought while reading, but you don't notice that you've done that until you're about three pages past where you stop paying attention? Maybe just me. Not knowing how you've arrived when driving is obviously rather disturbing, but because we're doing something really significant without really thinking, uh, it usually happens, well, it usually happens to me anyway, when I'm so familiar with the route that I'm doing uh, that I'm ceasing to pay close attention uh, on the assumption that this time will be like all the other times. We can become so over-familiar with the route that there's an assumption that we already know it. And it's, it's, it's risky to assume that we know. 
Take the example of John B. Sedgwick. He was a Union Army general whose last words were, they couldn't hit an elephant at this dis... I must admit to you now, when preparing for the sermon, knowing that it was looking at the passage on Noah, I thought, well, I know that passage. I've known it since I was small. In fact, I think we can all be a bit guilty of assuming that we need only pay a cursory sort of attention to it because we know it so well. Even if we've rarely been to church in our lives, this one, this one, everyone knows it, don't they? God tells Noah to build a big ark. He does. The animals go in two by two. The rains come. There's a massive flood, but it's all okay in the end. God puts a rainbow in the sky. Yardy, bloody, bloody, blah. We all know it. It's all familiar stuff. And actually, if we secretly, we might be able to confess that uh, we maybe think it's better suited for the kids with nice cartoons, things like that, and nice cartoon pictures and things. Well, the additional problem that I had was having made this assumption that we all already know what this story involves, I hit a bit of a wall, I have to admit. What could I possibly speak about on this on Sunday morning? Uh, what, What could I possibly say that was of use or of meaning? Time was becoming, quite seriously, shorter and shorter, and still no sermon. Panic was really just only around the corner, if I'm honest. Well, just as the army general had been an assumptive idiot, so had I. I, I'd over allowed my over-familiarity with the text uh, to lead me to make presumptions of understanding and insight but, and I suppose this is my first point, over-familiarity cannot be accepted when it comes to God's word. Of course God has something to say to us this morning on this passage. Of course this text is rich in message for us as long as we're prepared to look and listen rather than just go into automatic, as I seem to be the only person who dangerously does with their driving. Now, again, I wouldn't normally do this either, but I'm going to share with you something of the process that I went through in preparing this sermon. I read through the text several times, asking God to to highlight specific texts to make me look more closely at them. And I was struck by three specific particular verses, and one of these is found in verse 13, where we read, So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, For the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. I don't know how this is possible, but I genuinely hadn't really noticed something that I dare say many of you already have. And I apologise if I am pointing out the obvious. People were doing things wrong. People were corrupt and violent people. Verse 5 says, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and the thoughts of his heart were only evil all the time. It's only in preparing the sermon have I thought to ask the question, why didn't God just punish the people 
Why did the rest of creation need to be destroyed too? He could have just smite the people, but he didn't. Why not? Well, my conclusion is that people are inextricably linked with God's creation. The people had become self-serving and driven only by their own desires, and this had impacted on the earth so that it too had become stained. Just as a little ink dropped into pure water pollutes the liquid, so humanity's sinfulness had poisoned the earth and a fresh start was needed. Now, we don't have to look very far today to understand this point, do we? Mary's already alluded to it in our prayers this morning. The oceans provide more than 50% of the oxygen we breathe, and yet the equivalent of a truckload of plastic rubbish is dumped in our oceans every minute. Microplastics are now found with increasing measure, washed up on the remotest of islands and in the waters of even of Antarctica. And all because we want to maintain our convenient lifestyle in the way we want to, with one-use plastics. In 1971, a long-running long cartoon in the New York Times called Pogo featured Pogo and his companion walking through a forest. The companion says to Pogo, Ah, Pogo, the beauty of the forest primeval gets me in the heart. Pogo replies that it gets him in the feet. Why should that be the case? Well, when they look back, they can see they've been walking on waste, rubbish, casually and selfishly discarded. The companion says, It is hard walking on this stuff. To which Pogo replies sagely, Yep, some. We have met the enemy and he is us. What we do on a day-to-day basis, what each one of us does on a day-to-day basis, the choices that we make impact God's wider creation. Now, if this link between God's people and God's creation isn't a message for today, I really don't know what is. Over-familiarity with God's word and the laziness that follows just can't be accepted because when we do we make assumptions that we already know it all and we miss the important message God has for us in this case humanity and creation is all connected destroy one and the other is also destroyed God did not give us the earth to serve us so that we could just exploit it being granted dominion should not must not mean anything but accepting a responsibility of care for this earth. The second thing I noticed is that the seriousness of sin cannot be understated. The seriousness of sin cannot be understated. Evil is evil because it is quite simply rebellion against God. Evil is the failure to do what God demands or the performance of what God forbids. D.A. Carson writes in his book, How Long, O Lord? Not to love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength is a great evil, for God has demanded it. 
not to love our neighbor as ourself is a great evil for the same reason. To covet someone's house or car or wife is a great evil, for God has forbidden covetousness. To nurture bitterness and self-pity is evil for the same reason. The dimensions of evil are thus established by the dimensions of God. The ugliness of evil is established by the beauty of God. The selfishness of evil is established by the love of God. To sin, therefore, is obviously to do something most serious. There is no getting away from it, no matter how much we might like to. That is why we read in verse 6 that when God looked at humanity and what it had become and the impact it had had on creation, he was filled with pain. God was heartbroken at what he saw. His beautiful, beautiful creation, so marked and stained, when once it had been so good, creation seems undone. I find it really heart-wrenching verse that God was filled with pain. God is pained by sin. God is pained by all sin. God is pained by my sin. What I do or don't do, what you do or don't do, it matters to God. The implication of sin is they're also very serious. Paul puts it very starkly when writing to the Christians in Rome. In chapter 6 we read, For the wages of sin is death. Sadly, this was the experience of the many in the time of Noah. They thought they could behave as they wished with impunity. They were sadly wrong. And for us to think we are somehow different from those that lived as peers of Noah would be foolhardy. Our rebellion also leads to a death a separation from God in the life hereafter. We might live our, live our lives day by day, thinking we can do what we want, when we want. We might even think that it's our right to do so. But to live as the people of Noah's time lived courts the same judgment from God. God is all that is beautiful, good and loving. To think that we can live with little to no reference to him will incur the same judgment. The thing is, we know this in our heads, but do we really let it sink in? The seriousness of sin cannot be understated, and yet so often we do. Please forgive me, as I'm going to read another extract from Carson's book, because quite simply he puts it more eloquently than I could. He writes, I suspect that the reason why it is hard for many of us to live out these implications of our theology is that we do not deeply feel the truths we formally espouse. My creed may tell me I'm a miserable sinner, that I deserve hell, that all that I enjoy in life is a gracious gift from God, that I am in no position to expect to escape suffering. But when it comes right to it, right down to it, 
I simply feel my own suffering is unfair. That surely means that I've not really taken on board the Bible's picture of my own guilt. I am most likely to absorb that reality, I think, not when I sit around contemplating my own sins, though periodic reviews of my sins of word, thought and deed, not to mention my sins of omission, are wonderfully salutary, but when I glimpse a little more of who God is. It was the display of who God is that finally helped to settle Job's mind. If we grasp a little better how God looks at our sin, what our rebellion rightly deserves, even though not all our questions about evil and suffering are answered, we are likely to face the wounding times with less resentment and indignation and with more gratitude and trust than would otherwise be the case. So over-familiarity with God's word cannot be accepted because it leads us to miss or actively ignore significant truth, such as our intrinsic link with his creation. And secondly, the seriousness of sin cannot be understated as it has implications for both now and our eternal future. Finally, the grace of God cannot be measured. Thus far, I'm aware I've been rather all doom and gloom. It's not easy, it's not comfortable to be told of our shortcomings and and their consequence. But there lies within this text in Genesis a message of hope, a message of grace. God gave a means of salvation. God did not completely destroy all life. Some were saved We read later on in Genesis, but I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. God gave the means by which Noah and his family might be saved. It's why in the design of some churches you will see the roof is purposely made to look like the bows of a ship, to serve as a reminder that God saves. God saved Noah and his family with the ark And God today graciously offers each one of us, you, a way to be saved from the destructive force of sin in your life. There is a way to be set free and to start again. In 1 Peter 3, starting at verse 18, we read, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous that's Jesus, for the unrighteous, you and me, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the response of a good conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Despite everything, despite all that you and I have ever done and shall do, God's grace has it covered by the saving work of Jesus Christ. If you are willing to accept what Jesus has done for you because he loves you, 
It's the equivalence of stepping onto that ark, being obedient to his call, as Noah was, so that God may put into action his rescue of you. Following the flood, I knew that God made a covenant with Noah. We can read about it in chapter 9. But what I'd missed was this covenant, again, maybe this is just me, but I'd missed that what this covenant was with was not just with Noah. It was not just with people. It was with his whole creation. I'll remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on earth. Not only we, but all of creation is to be a part of God's restorative plan of salvation. The rainbow is the reminder of God's commitment to all his creation and the rescue that he extends. So yes, God is a God that judges because he is good. And we see that judgment as his creation is damaged by the sin of those that lived alongside Noah. But we have the hope that this is not the end of the story. Creation is not undone forever. There is more to come. God has made not a temporary, not a momentary, but an everlasting covenant. And by his grace, we may receive that rescue here and now. And its fulfillment in creation in the time to come.